G'day Hawks fans and welcome to this very special episode in which we have an interview with four-time Premiership player, that's 83, 86, 88 and 89 if you don't mind, a member of our team of the century, he played 154 games, he kicked 193 goals, Tiz, will you do the honours? He needs no introduction, does he? I think they know who we're talking about. Bucky, Gary Bacanara, the genius himself. Gary Bacanara, what an enormous pleasure it was to chat to him, Tiz. Uh, I think we both had enormous fun in this interview. Great fun. I mean, we just hear about both eras of dominance from from Hawthorne, and, and then he's got ideas on how we should progress in the future, and... Uh, his love for the club is still palpable. It's terrific. Fair to say it was a pretty comprehensive chat, Tiz, and uh, we can only hope that uh, all our fans and listeners out there enjoy it every bit as much as we did. So sit back and relax. Here's Gary Bacanara. The first thing I want to ask is, you've left Subiaco, you've collected three wooden spoons on your way there, uh, you made, they made a contract with Hawthorne that keeps them solvent and you arrive at the club and there's a huge number of egos there and I just wonder what it's like walking into Hawthorne in 1982. Yeah, look, it was uh, fairly dawning. Um, although I was a, a later starter, you know, like I was 23 when I came over to Hawthorne, um, uh, 24 in the year of 1982. So I was a bit of a mature age and... Um, um, but I'd only sort of started waffle footy when I was 21. So, you know, I just played with my mates, uh, basically, uh, from, you know, 18 years of age to 21 um, at a E-grade amateur footy level. So uh, I was just enjoying life. <laughs> <laughs> but you had these, uh, you had some stunning skills when you came over, didn't you? How did you, how did you manage to get those um, playing in that in that division? Well, I think the skills, and that's the biggest thing uh, that I think today that some of the, the younger players should take a, a lot of heed of is that basically me and my mates uh, and my brothers spent just about every uh, light hour after school uh, kicking a footy at goals, you know, and um, playing little two-on-twos and three-on-three games and you know, little practice matches and just learning, you know, how to kick a footy, how to do that, how to handle a footy, taking big speckies on each other's back. We used to play the game where some poor bugger had to stand out the front and you'd kick it above his... And he'd have to he'd have to bend over and you'd jump on his back and take a big screamer. And um, we did all that sort of stuff and... Um, Today, I, I just don't think, and that's why I think the set shot kicking uh, at goals is a real problem because uh, uh, the young lads come up. It hasn't improved, has it? Well, it's gone backwards because the young lads don't go down and, and work out their own kicking style and work out their own routine. They have people telling them how they should approach the goals and do all this. And you learn that at a young age because everyone's kicking style is different. So you perfect what's natural to you. And uh, that's what we did as kids. And, and so I guess that's where my skills were developed. And, um, you know, I played footy um, for fun with my mates. Um, I was more interested in cricket. Yeah, I, I read about that. The cricket sort of dominated you for a while there. Yeah, well, I was playing first grade district cricket with um, Scarborough Cricket Club and you know, playing alongside uh, guys like Rod Marsh and Dennis Lilly and wow. uh, Gre- Gre- Greg Shippard and Tom Hogan and uh, Robbie Langer um, and and plenty of others that were were playing in that side at the time. And so, um, yeah, I loved my cricket. And um, uh, when I went in, um, in 1979, went over and um, got talked into going and doing a pre-season at Subi, 
that's where the footy journey started. I went in as an E-grade amateur player, trying out to try and get a spot on the on the Subi list. And before I know it, um, my first game is playing an Escort Cup game against Richmond at the uh, Waverley Park, and I'm playing on Jeff Rains. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It's a, it's a big step, isn't it? And then you get to Hawthorne in 82 and, and you don't miss a game. You play every game for the year and Hawthorne are bundled out in finals with two losses to Carlton. But um, you come back next year and I think you only miss a handful of games there and into the into the first grand final. And uh, how, how was that, entering that game? We know about what happens in the first few minutes but um, the expectations would have been enormous for you guys. This would be Jeans's first premiership. Um, he had won at St Kilda, but uh, he's under pressure now. Yeah, look, uh, for the first two years at Hawthorne, I did, um, you know, I, I think I kicked 60, 60 odd goals in my first year, and uh, um, I was pretty debilitated with uh, patella tendonitis in both knees. And. Um, um, I'd had a number of cortisone injections into the tendon just to help me get through those years. Um, and as you say, I, did, I didn't miss many games, but I was always restricted in my training, you know, because I just couldn't do a lot of training. And, and they didn't know it at the time, but the cortisone was actually making it worse. Is that, that's right, isn't it? Well, it made it better, but it makes it worse because they then found out that... Um, by injecting cortisone directly into the tendon, what it does is it makes the tendon all soft and mushy, which makes it weak. And so basically from, I guess, my snap patella tendon in the, um, in the grand final, um, the practice of injecting into tendons uh, basically stopped from that point onwards and it became more of a, a joint uh, injection where you'd put it into a joint and not into tendons. You still hit the target though, Gary. <laughs> 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 yeah, look, I guess, you know, I, you know, I was very restricted in in my training, which, you know, I, you know, I, I basically got up to train on Thursdays, a fairly light session and then play on Saturdays. And then by Sunday, I was, I was hobbling around in that much pain generally um, after playing in a game, you know, because, you know, um, it would it would be really painful. It's a very debilitating thing having patella tendonitis in one knee, but when you have it in both knees, it's really hard. I guess off the back of that, I'm curious about what your mindset would have been at that time. Are you having grave fears over your playing career at that point? Because it sounds like it was a real struggle. Not at that point. Uh, I certainly had it after I snapped the tendon in the 83 grand final. Um, you know, um, basically I lost about 20-odd kilos in um, in 18 days in hospital. And so going and coming out at 60-odd kilos out of hospital going in at 83, you know, I, you know it was a real battle. And... Um, yeah, I think a lot of my teammates thought she's going to struggle to get back, and I I thought I'd struggle. But anyhow, I worked hard, and there must have been a, a big pull back to the group, though, because um, you know you got guys like David O'Halloran and Dipper, and and um, well, you got Tucky there and Lee Matthews, and you must have that's what must have brought you through, I suppose, the the ethos of the team to play through that pain barrier. They were marvellous, the the guys, and they understood that I wasn't a, a bludger, you know. Uh, I wasn't not training because I didn't want to. I wasn't training because I couldn't, you know. And, um, you know, that was frustrating for me too, you know. Like I wanted to be out there, but, you know, I just had to manage my body, um, um, you know, through 82 and 83 so I could get up and play on Saturdays. And then 84, basically, I spent the year uh, recovering and uh, played a few at the back end of the game. I think I played the last home and away in the seniors. And incidentally, in that game, I I tore my quad really early in the game when I came on. And, um, you know, which is quite uh, a lot of my teammates would say it's fairly rare for me. I think I had something like three kicks and 14 handballs. Um <laughs> 
because I couldn't kick the footy. Um, yeah, so but I stayed out there and played, and I did okay in my first game back, and uh, played a, a reserves uh, final, which we got beaten in. But I knew I wasn't right to play in the '84 grand final, and then '85. There I, are a couple of uh, good good ones to miss, as, <laughs> as it turns out. Well, that's what I keep telling my teammates. You know, <laughs> you know we're going okay. You know, we win '83. I'm out '84, '85. You play three minutes, hundred percent disposal efficiency, and you get them over the line, Gary. That's a... <laughs> yeah. Well, Norm Smith nipped in the bud there. You know, <laughs> one possession in three minutes. That's forty for the game. I know we don't want to linger on it too long but I mean I have to ask because it is difficult vision to watch how the hell did you take that kick what possessed you to get up and go again because that is that's remarkable to me yeah well I thought I dislocated my knee and right because as gruesome as it sounds my kneecap was sitting in my thigh and um when I straightened my leg up it sort of went back down a bit and I thought oh it's gone back in so I thought I, I thought it had um, dislocated, but of course the whole tendon was uh, ruptured and uh, nothing was holding. So as the moment I put weight on it to kick it, you saw me go backwards and the ball's come off the end of my toe and gone 15 metres to Swabby, a beautiful pass. <laughs> <laughs> this is, um, you had an incredible year too. You took out the, I think you gave Western Australia the uh, Australian champions, you kicked seven. So you're in form. Yeah, look, I was really happy with my first two years, I think, you know, uh, considering the, you know, the debilitating injury that I sort of had and kept playing and, and, and whatever, to do what I did in those two years was really pleasing to me. Then it was a real battle. You know, I, I, I guess I had natural ability um, and that sort of came through. But for the first time in my life after I did my knee, I... I couldn't take things for granted and I had to work really hard, you know, probably for the first time in ever in my sporting career, even in cricket, you know, things came so easy or seemingly easy to me, you know. Um, well, I think it's important to talk through this because when you look at your CV, Gary, it just looks like you had a charmed life at Hawthorne, <laughs> you know. And then and then you come back to the club and, and you make some incredible selections from... Um, for the for the uh, team list, and um, it looks like the luck was with you the whole way. But it's important to emphasise for a lot of our younger listeners just what a struggle it was. And you saying that you have to um, double down, and you felt that this was the first time you really had to put the effort in. I guess your story would speak to a lot of um, Hawthorne players down the years. Yeah, look, and, and you're a very lucky football if you go through a career without having a an injury or having some, you know, form problems and up and down and, you know, generally the roller coaster ride of any um, profession or um, even in business and, um, you know, when you look at things, you know, you just don't get, you know, the, the graph doesn't always go upwards. It's sometimes a bit of a roller coaster ride and from there, you you know, you learn how to, you know, work through issues and, you know, find solutions to problems and, um, you know, and, you know, start, you know, get that belief back in yourself. And I guess that's what I battled in 84, 85 with is that belief that I could do what I did in 82, 83, you know, and at Subiaco and for WA when I was, you know, reasonably fit and going okay it's that self-doubt and that belief in yourself that you could do what you did before. And I guess it wasn't for me personally, the turning point was probably the 85 reserves grand final when I didn't get selected in the um, senior team. And that was, that was a big kick in the ass. Cause again, I didn't know whether I'd ever get that chance to play in a senior grand final again. And, and I felt that, I should have been in there, but... Yeah, I think you said through anger, you you threw yourself at the contest and you leapt for the marks that you hadn't been leaping for and... Yeah, I just went out there and just went for it, you know, like, and, and, I, and I guess I played, not angry, but I played really determined to do well and to show people that I could play and probably prove a point to the selectors they should have picked me and... And probably in that 85 grand final, nothing would have made a difference. Um, Essendon were just far too good. 
Um, but I guess in the end of the day, yeah, I might have sh- shown them that I, I, I could have been picked. But more importantly, that I proved to myself that I could still do that stuff and I could still play well. And, and that was the catalyst for driving me forward in 86, 87, 88 and 89 um, for the you know, rest of the career. Well, I want to ask about that because the fact is you, you taste premiership success again the following year. Now, given where you had come from, all the work rate and resilience that was required and how hard you'd scrapped against that adversity, how does the 86 premiership in particular rate for you on a personal level? It sounds like it was pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, it was. Just to be out there and get through the game and, you know, be a contributor. I think I kicked four in the first um, half. Um, you know, so I had a good start and, um, you know, the team, you know, had a good win and I was there at the end and I was able to feel that sense of euphoria and that mateship that you get to share, you know, when you do win a premiership, which I felt that, you know, I was cheated on in uh, 83 and, you know, that was very satisfying for me to actually be out there and it was, you know, it made the journey of the previous, you know, three years very worthwhile and you had a um you had a moment with bruce Dool and ended up receiving the jumper on the international trip later in the year and you've sent since given that back but you spoke glowingly about how bruce um never tugged the jumper he was a very clean player and in a time where uh there was a lot of thuggery going on that that sort of um well that, that was em- that seemed to come out of the blue for me, um, you, you, were, you were a clean player yourself. So how do you speak about that when you're with your teammates and you've got Lethal and, and Dipper and do they, they've, they've got their roles and how, how does that work in terms of the team ethos? Oh, look, Bruce Dill was such a hard player to play on, but he was so fair, you know, and um, he was... Um, I used to look forward to playing on him, even though I knew it would be hard to get a kick on him. I took it as a real challenge. And, um, you know, I knew that, you know, if I beat him and kicked a goal on him, it would be, you know, because I was, you know, I did something really good. Um, And so he taught me a lot, uh, Bruce Dool, about, you know, defence and, um, you know, you'd thought you had him beaten a hundred times, but all of a sudden the big long arm had come through and be able to get a fist on it. And um, So it was great playing on him and a real challenge. And, you know, we played on each other a number of times um, um, through that period of time. And, you know, I think I beat him a couple of times. Um, He predominantly, um, you know, sort of kept me reasonably quiet. But, um, you know, the times that I did, beat him I just felt a, a great sense of satisfaction within myself even though I might have might not have been best on ground you know I felt that you know I got the better of one of the greatest defenders in my mind of all times and uh, you know personally that was a great thing yeah I love this I, I think <laughs> tis who we're speaking to here personally and competitively there's so much spirit here I'm, I'm loving hearing about it of course in 1987 the prelim you got to be the hero uh, you, you got the you got the moment. Uh, are you sick of people talking about it? Can we can we discuss it now? <laughs> I always know when I meet a Melbourne supporter because the first thing they say to me is you 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 so and so, and so I, I guess all all I say is uh, I guessing you're a Melbourne supporter. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, uh, after '96 and the way they voted, uh, <laughs> this was. <laughs> <laughs> this may have impacted their vote, of course, Gary. So, <laughs> but uh, listeners to the podcast will know I hold no sympathy for Melbourne at any point. <laughs> Just like Nick, Nick holds no sympathy for North Melbourne. That kick. How confident were you? Lining up. It, it's the stuff that kids dream of in their backyard. That that kind of match-winning goal. Uh, how confident were you going, Matt? You can you can answer honestly. If you really thought you had it in the bag, that's fine. Judging by his <laughs> body language, he didn't have any doubt. He just. No. And I tell you, it's important that I tell Melbourne supporters. You know, I would have kicked it without the fifteen metre penalty because <laughs> it actually takes the pressure off the late Jim Steins and it makes them feel a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but um, luckily, I didn't think too much at the time. You know, 
I just thought about, you know, where I needed to aim, where I needed to, to kick. And I was always very confident in my own kicking ability. Um, you know, that's borne out from what I spoke about before is the hours and hours and hours I spent down the parks with my mate kicking for goals. Uh, um, we just used to do it until dark. So I was always very confident in my kicking style. And, you know, if I had a, um, gone back and said, oh, you know, I've got to kick this or we, we, we won't get in the grand final or, you know, don't miss this or whatever, you know, yeah, I didn't think of any of those things that, one of the funny things is uh, Russell Green comes up to me. If you ever see that replay, he puts his arm around me and puts his head on my shoulder and he says, for God's sake, Bucky, kick the goal. The siren's gone. <laughs> Good advice. You must have known the siren was gone. No, I didn't know it had gone. No, I didn't know. The I, bloke in the box just keeps his finger on the siren the whole time. It's quite strange. Yeah, because there was so much um, noise and whatever, yeah, the... I didn't hear the siren. I don't think the umpire heard the siren. This is like a piece of the puzzle falling into place for me because every time I see that footage, I'm like, he does know that he has time, doesn't he? <laughs> Very hasty and it comes across as confidence, not recklessness. I'm like, wow, he's really sure of himself. I, I think yeah, it- because I did, I thought, you know, time was running out. You know, maybe I needed to get it on quick. Yeah, gotcha. Um, yeah. So I didn't know the siren had gone just after I got pushed in the back by Rod Grinder and um, so, you know, I only knew the siren had gone when Russell Green told me. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, there you go. So thankfully I kicked it. And, um, you know, I must say, uh, after that, I was more nervous after the game, you know, when things settled down, you know, Tucky and Airsy were fagging in the corner with their, um, VB, you know, um, you know, and I say to a lot of people, the only things that went in ice um, after a game back in the 80s were the VBs and <laughs> the body certainly didn't go into ice baths uh, and all that sort of thing. But as I sat there and reflected, the more I thought about the ramifications, if I had a miss, oh, wow. okay. and I got sort of a bit shaky then, you know, wow. thinking, oh, Jesus, what have I done? You know, like... Um, Retroactive anxiety. Yeah, I sort of got delayed... Um, reaction to it and um you know it um it was something that you know it was really weird well it, it'll be one of those moments that um alan jeans would have been talking about when he said you're hawthorne's best big game player and um i did read a story about you chucking jeansy on the on the wrestling mat <laughs> yeah i think i'm one of only two that actually got him off because we were talking to uh, Tony Wilson the other week, who's got his book on um, the 1989 grand final, and, he, and Dipper could never could never wrestle Jeansy off him. He used to whisper in his ear, you know, you you're weak and all this stuff. Oh and, yeah, look, he, he used to give you pecks on the cheek and <laughs> put his finger in your ear and all that sort of stuff, and you know, he'd just say, you know, it could be all over as long as you tell me I'm a better man, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And of course, you know, that's a, something, uh, you know, that the dippers and, you know, even me that, you know, uh, I didn't want to do that. So you'd, spe- you'd spend 20 minutes on top of you, wow. giving you little kisses and whispering in your ear and, you know, like it was hard work. You know, you were trying to get him off and he just had you in these police holds that you couldn't get out of. I thought we were talking about resilience before, Tiz. <laughs> But this one day where I got up, it was a Sunday where he did a lot of stuff with me, you know, particularly through that rehab period. And I reckon it was in the um, 85 season, um, you know, he was still working with me and stuff like that. And I I ended up getting myself to, to my feet somehow. He just relaxed for a bit and I just got myself up and he was on my back. You know, and uh, sort of like a piggyback, but he was top heavy. He was sort of over the top of my shoulders. And I stumbled forward and I went down. But because his head was in front of mine, and I don't know if you've ever seen, the, you saw the old Glen Ferry change rooms with the carpet on the on the floor. His head grazed the carpet oh, and uh, took like a huge <laughs> carpet burn, like skin off the front of his forehead when he had a fairly pronounced forehead as it was Jimmy, um, <laughs> with the big flapping ears. And um, he had to go on world of sport uh, on the, on that Sunday. 
Um, and uh, to do the coach's corner, you know, when they interviewed the two yeah, coaches. Yeah. That would have been a good look. Makeup's like, what do we do with this? <laughs> we had a record crowd in the players' room that um, day to watch, <laughs> you know, because we had a, our training and then we used to have sausage sizzle and a few beers uh, in the players' room. And, of course, we were all waiting for Gigi to come on and everyone stayed around to see Gigi because he had the big mercuricome <laughs> all over the big patch. <laughs> On his head, and uh, uh, gee, we'll have to look up that footage. <laughs> he got quizzed by Jack Dyer. What's uh, happened to your to your foreign? He just uh, in Gigi's um, way, he just sort of said, uh, "Just a part of the hazards of coaching." <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, if that footage has slipped through the cracks, that is a travesty. We'll have to dig that one up. See if we can find it. Yeah. Uh, that title, the best big game player. I'm just wondering, Gary. Um, did you prepare for certain clashes differently? I mean, was there some kind of secret behind this assessment of genes that you headed into things going like, right, this is a big game, and I'm going to do this, this, and this? Did you did you do things differently? No, no. If you could unlock that secret, you'd be uh, you'd win the Brownlow every year. But <laughs> look, I I look forward to the the big stages. Um, you know, I got nervous like everybody else, and I wanted you know to play well, but I didn't. Um, I sort of didn't get over because you know there's a fine line between being over. Um, ready for a contest and under ready for a contest there's the right amount and I, I felt like you know a little bit of nervousness was always good and I was always nervous before any game but you know I just love um, the I, I love to be able to go out and challenge myself on the big stage to, you know to be the best I could and those state games were state of origin clashes against Victoria were fantastic through the 80s and you know, playing in fine, a lot of finals and um, grand finals. I guess I, I just love that stage. In 1987, you kicked 42 goals, 15, which is an incredible kicking accuracy. Yeah, look, I, I guess I always um, felt confident in my kicking. Um, that was uh, that was one thing that I always felt that I could do pretty well is not only kick for goal, but kick, you know, field kicking and hitting teammates and not wasting too many possessions. I think these days you'd take that in a heartbeat, that kind of ratio. Yeah, well, if I come back this in this era, I want to be a half-back flanker, not a half-forward flanker. <laughs> Today's footy, give me half-back flank any time, that'll do me. Uh, get those 15-metre kicks sideways and uh, give a couple of 15-metre kicks sideways and, um, you know, rack up 35, 40 possessions of halfback flank. That'd be all right. I'll take any footy at the moment. If that's on my TV, I'm watching it. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week after the 87 prelim isn't isn't so flash, but you, the, the mood in the rooms must have been... Um, terribly aggressive going into the 88 grand final, I would imagine. Both um, the 88, you know, we, we, you know, obviously Alan Joyce took over and um, Alan Jeans had the uh, brain aneurysm and um, he had to have a year off and Joycey came in and, and really, you know, the boys were just so motivated that year, you know, just to make amends um, for 87 and, um, yeah, so I think we only lost one or two games that year, and we smashed Melbourne in the in the um, grand final. Uh, it was a super team. Do you think that that was the best team you played in all round? Because you know you had guys like Tony Hall, you know who you know got hurt in that '89 State of Origin game. You know he he, he probably you know would have hung around Hawthorne a bit longer. You know had it not been for that um, knee injury and. He was a great player, but yeah, look, I, I just think, you know, through that era, I think that whole 80s group, you know, you, you could, you know, say there was 30 to 35 guys that went through that 80s and played in most of those grand finals and final series. Um, it was a remarkable group, yeah. It's incredible to think that at the end of 85, Lee Matthews and Peter Knight's leave... And you still make the grand finals with Platten coming in, and it's just a renewal. And it's amazing that um, Jeans and Joyce got along so well, even though they had to share the roles at some point. The, the egos must have been incredibly uh, well managed. Well, I, I guess '88 came. You know, Jeans had been there for, I think, five, 
six years prior to that, and maybe the '88 came with a you know a, a new voice, which might have freshened the group, and then Gigi came back in '89, and um, you know um, it was like nothing had ever changed. You know, he just walked in and you know, took over from Joycey, and you know it was another new voice, and uh, away we went again. His mid-game addresses, did they? motivate you I know Chris Lankford sort of says that uh, he could he could hear the emotion in the voice but it was more of a um, a cerebral game to him he just he felt that he knew what he had to do and he would go out and do it whereas other guys would get emotionally involved what what type of reaction did you have to Jeans and his pay the price and oh yeah they were they were amazing you know that uh, pay the price in the 89 at half time and um, you know um Jeansy was such a good um, coach uh, to understand the types of players and what brought the best out in each individual. So generally his talks were generally around the group. Um, He would very rarely single out uh, individuals um, and, and make a point to them in front of the other players. You know, he might do that behind closed doors or he might do whatever if he had to make a strong point to a player that he was concerned about an area of his game. He'd never do it in front of players. He knew the types of players that he could, um, you know, give a bit of a roar to at, um, you know, at uh, quarter time, half time, three quarter time. And generally Dermot and Dipper were the, were the whipping boys. Um Lee being the captain back in the earlier days, um, you know, he was always somebody that Gigi sort of said, Lee, you know, we've got to do something here and generally something would happen, you know, when he said that to, to Lee. Ah, oh, okay. That was a that was a cue, was it? <laughs> well, you know, he'd either kick five goals or someone to go off on a stretcher, you know. Um... <laughs> it must be terrific to have that on your side, though. That'd give you a lot of confidence. You know, oh, yeah. They've got you back. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you play with the Dippers and the Dermots and the Lee Matthews, I can assure you. And I was playing half forward and Lee was playing full forward, you know, back in that, you know, 83, 84, 85, you know, and 82 as well. He wasn't playing as much on the ball and he spent a lot of time, you know, as full. And I think he kicked something like 70 or 80 goals as a, in 83 or 82 as a full forward. You know, um, which is amazing for a five foot nine, you know, little fella. But I always knew, and so did my opponents, know that Lee Matthews was behind them. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I reckon that got me a metre uh, because there might have been a little glance to see where Lee was, you know, like, and um, that was always good to know that he was behind me. And um, so I, I knew my opponent knew that Lee was behind me as well. And the same with Dermot, you know, Dermot. Uh, produced the same sort of blokes, you know, used to be wary of where Dermot was. You know, there's no doubt about that. I watched the um, I watched the 89 prelim the other day and I uh, couldn't believe Swabby got rubbed out for what he did. <laughs> He'd get about 10 weeks nowadays, Swabby, for what he did. Well, it didn't look that bad on the replay, but when oh, you look at you what... you must um... be watching another replay. <laughs> <laughs> but when I looked at what uh, Brereton got away with in comparison... Yeah, well, I think in that, in that unfortunately in that game, Swabby's elbow, the point of his elbow made contact with the bloke's head and it was pointed from about 10 metres away. Oh, um, okay. Whereas Dermot's bumps and all that on Vandahar and whatever in that game, were, his, his elbows were always tucked in. It was just clear shirt fronts. Yeah, don't don't mind his, Gary. Um, he's just watching with his one eye if you catch on drift. <laughs> I think Daisy Williams copped a, a fairly good tackle from him too. In the first few minutes of the 89 grand final, there is a spectacular attempt at a mark from you, Gary, um, where you sort of launch to the boundary line and you're horizontal with the ground. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you take that? Because I reckon that should have been paid. That's an incredible moment. I did take the mark. Should it have been paid? Was it in or...? Well, it was over the boundary line, I Oh, think. was it? <laughs> it had gone over the boundary line on the full, but I still marked it. But um, anyhow, it was. Uh, I reckon I was about a foot over the line, but anyhow, but... I still, I still went for it and took the mark and 
I was uh, sort of back in my cricket days then trying to take a slips catch or a gully catch. Actually, it does. It looks exactly like a cricket catch, yeah. Yeah. As I was going to lead into, we want to get into uh, your time with the uh, recruiting at Hawthorne, but um, we were talking off off camera before, uh, myself and Tiz, and what was the thing you brought up, Tiz, that four flags as a player and four flags are <laughs> behind the scenes as well for Hawthorne, all up? So eight of the 13, Bucky's been involved with. It's an incredible record. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like that, Gary, but there you are. <laughs> yeah, look, um, you know, I, I feel very proud to have, um, you know, played in four premierships and um, and then played a part um, in helping the club, particularly, you know, with their recruiting from 2004 uh, to 2015. And, um, um, you know, through that time, yeah, you're right, I, I was... Um, Lucky enough to see the boys win another four premierships um, and that wonderful three-peat. Before we get headlong into that, I, I might be putting Tiz on the spot here because it's something we talked about earlier today as we were preparing for this. Tiz, do you happen to have that stat handy, the, the percentage on you? So you've played 154 games with 293 goals, but your winning percentage of 77.6, and you may be aware, is the highest of any player over 150 games for Hawthorne. Yeah, well, I wasn't aware of that, you know, uh, but I guess uh, reinforces uh, 84, 85 that I can continue to rub into my teammates. <laughs> I think you can definitely take that stat to them. <laughs> well, I was saying today to Tiz that uh, basically whenever you're on the field, you can feel pretty good about yourself. <laughs> you're like, oh, I think we're a good shot here, actually. Uh, but we'll get stuck into the 2000s. Uh, you headed into the 2004 National Draft famously with this mission in mind, the two tall forwards and a midfielder, all three you ended up with end up being superstars. But what was the rationale behind the order that the club picked them in? I mean, I think it was two, five and seven and Ruffy was first, but could you walk us through what the mindset was? Yeah, well, Clark had been appointed, obviously uh, senior coach and um, he always felt key position players were very hard to find and we probably lacked a bit in key position um, players at that particular time and um, so he said with our you know I, I'd prefer to get two key position type players and and one midfielder with our first three picks if we can do that so we went away and um, you know talked about how how you know and the types of players we could possibly try and get um, you know we were very keen on obviously Lance and you know um, and Jared Ruffin. We felt they were the two best key position players, um, and how we could go about getting both of them. And you know, uh, so you heard that uh, Ruffin had already been invited to the uh, president's lunch or something. And well, not lunch, just a president's barbecue at his house. So he... <laughs> okay. With his mum and dad and, you know, they'd all been invited because they were going to take him at pick four because everyone had sort of assumed that we were going to take Richard Tambling with our first pick. Um, so that got out there. I'm not sure how that got out. but um, Was that true? or was Not that... really, but, <laughs> but it got out, you know. So It's um, a shame. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, Ryan Griffin was always going to go. Um, Brett Deledio was always going to go first pick to Richmond. Um, then it was our pick, and we knew uh, Bulldogs were basically going to take Ryan Griffin, and um, Richmond were going to take Jared Ruffin. So to get the two, you know, and Lance was sort of in the mix. Uh, he was always very talented, but you know. He was a very confident young man, which may have rubbed. He was, you know, fairly lackadaisical at the draft camp. You know, he even missed our appointment. We had to go and, you know, interview. We had to go and pull him out of his room because he was watching TV. Oh, um, uh, so, um, you know, he was pretty casual and pretty lackadaisical. And I think a lot of clubs were worried whether he'd be able to cope in the AFL environment. Um, no one doubted his talent. And so what we took the punt on was we knew, like, if we took Franklin with pick two, we wouldn't get Roughhead with pick four because he'd go to... So um, Jared, you know, it wasn't a sacrifice pick. We loved Jared and we just felt he was such a good young man that he'd be a great pickup regardless whether we get Franklin. Um, and so we went with Roughhead and uh, I don't think many in the room expected that to happen. 
and uh, it went as we thought. And then Richmond took Richard Tambley um, with pick four and that allowed us to get Buddy with pick five. I don't know if you know this, Gary, and, and maybe <laughs> I'm not expecting you to elaborate on this, but uh, at least amongst the supporters, it was of great amusement to us that Richmond took Tambling. Uh, was it of amusement to the admin at Hawthorne that that happened? No, not at all, because, you know, I, I like Richard Tambling as a player. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, back at that time, I would have felt that if Richard Tambling had come to Hawthorne, he might have been a different player. Um, uh, but given he went to Richmond, who didn't have a great um, off-field um, going at the time, um, you know, whereas, you know, young Clarko probably would have developed Richard a bit better. Um, he did have some really good quality. So I liked Richard um, as a young man and as a footballer. Um, and, but, but at the end of the time, you know, we had, to, we had to do what was right for the Hawthorne Footy Club and um, our strategy on the day worked out really well. There seems to be something to the development at Hawthorne. It seems to be second to none. There's um, just so many players that have either come from other clubs to Hawthorne, um, seemingly shown a bit at other clubs, but then they come to Hawthorne, they get a role, they get the training they need, and it's just a focus they seem to get. Yeah, look, and and I guess recruiting's not just one person. It, you know, we, we have a big... We had a big team back then, you know, of part-time recruiters in WA, South Australia, Northern Territory, all over Australia, you know. So, you know, our team was probably up to 20 at some stage, uh, a lot of them part-time, probably, you know, three full-timers, including myself. And um, so it's just not one person that makes the decision. You know, you, you spread your wings as far as you can go and you make informed decisions on the talent. You have enough people watch the talent to make uh, and to have their strong opinions and that's what it's that's what it's about um, um, and getting it right and I think you know predominantly when you look at players like Luke Bruce who was a rookie listed player and who became an elevated rookie list player and I was going through some of the players the other night and um, you know some of the picks you know um, you know Stratton's in the 40s and Sicily 56 and You'd look look at Matt Suckling, you know, who played such a pivotal role as a, you know, kicking type player off the halfback flank. You know, after we lost Clinton Young, he was very important. Yeah, yeah, and Clinton Young, and then your Taylor Dray came through. All these guys were rookies, you know, and um, you just sort of look at some of the picks. You know, Gillum was recycled, Jew was recycled. You know, courtesy of Clarko. Um, all of these players came in with a specific job to do and, um, you know, they, they were given roles and given opportunity to develop and given the confidence and the belief. And that's a credit to Clarko and his team, but it's also a credit, you know, to the recruiting guys to be able to analyse these guys and see enough in them. Yeah, see the potential, yeah. Particularly the, the rookie list players that could develop into good players and, you know, we weren't blessed with early picks, particularly, you know, after 208 when we, you know, we were we were picking at the back end all the time of the first round. And, um, you know, to be able to add the players that we did through that period of time and just trade for the right ones and uh, bring in the right ones... Um, is the reason why we've had that sustained success, yeah. I'm just wondering, when does vindication generally arrive in terms of, like, knowing that you've made a right call with a player? Is it something you see, I don't know, like, behind the scenes? Is it maybe a big-time performance? Or maybe it's even just a premiership? I mean, what allows you to put a tick in the box? Oh, look, I I always had a rule of thumb of about three to four years um, with the normal players, and sometimes the bigger boys can take a lot more... You know, the perseverance might even take, you know, five to six years with, you know, a potential ruckman, um, you know, because they uh, they tend to take a little bit more time. But um, That's been something Hawthorne struggled with for a long time, recruiting ruckman. Well, yeah, we've been unlucky. Max Bailey would have been a beauty if he hadn't have done all those knees. Um, he, showed, he showed the type of player he could be when he, you know, he actually finished a year and um, there was a moment in that 2013 grand final uh, I think he got tackled and I thought oh 
you know, he, he just sort of buckled at the knee and um, that was right in front of me in the stand. <laughs> I just sort of head to hands, you know, but he but he played on and got the premiership. Yeah, but we didn't have the, you know, like the, the Grundy or the, you know, real star. But we had a lot of serviceable uh, players, you know, like Simon Taylor was a, a late pick, but Simon did a, a, a good role and uh, played his role. David Hale played an exceptional role for the footy club as that forward who could kick goals but could help out in the ruck. Um, Robbie Campbell, again, not not huge, um, tall bloke, but he, you know, had a great work ethic and, you know, such a good fellow to have around, you know. And then um, you know, Brett Renouf, who played in a grand final, you know, again, had a lot of injuries and uh, he had a lot of self-doubts about himself, but he... He's a grand final player, and you know I think McAvoy's been marvellous. What a pickup, you know, and a trade trade he was. You know, he was just the right player at the right time. He just that was such an important get for the footy club. Yeah, I asked that question to ask to ask this one. Um, we hear a lot about picking the best talent available, and when does the best talent available versus um, drafting for need? How does that in, inform your judgment on the day? It's always it's always a part for what you draft today in terms of young kids should be in your in your model of players uh, that are playing regularly in three to four years time. So you look at that type of positional type player to balance them out. Uh, you trade for today, right? So you trade for whatever you need. You don't trade for potential. You trade on currency yeah you you trade what you need now so if you need a ruckman you go out and try and find ben mcavoy yeah um if you need a you know key defender you go out and find a key defender brian lake um, <laughs> brian lake yeah um and that's what the club did very well address those needs so what you need now you do you've got to address that in the training period future model is what um you know, young players bring and they should be in the future best 22 in, you know, three to four years' time. So you're constantly looking at your side and your your, your player needs in, in those periods of time, you know, not just next year, but, you know, in three to four years, five years' time of how you, what type of players you're going to need to have coming through. And uh, sometimes in a draft, um You'll never you'll take best player basically with your first round pick, um, with your second, third, maybe fourth round pick. You you might look to the future if you need a developing ruckman. You might sort of look at a developing ruckman who's going to take four to five years time. If you need a developing key position player, you might take one of them. But generally, with your first pick, which is generally a first round pick, you'll take best available talent in your talent flow. I'm curious as to some of your essential ingredients in terms of what makes a top recruit. I know in the past you you favoured footballers over athletes quite specifically. You've, you've looked for guys that, um, I've got a quote here, play the game hating to lose. Uh, it's the way you describe Liam Shields uh, and Stratton fits that mould too. Are there any other things that really sit at the top of your list where you're like very eagle-eyed for them? Well, I'm a, I was always a big believer in watching football live. Um um, rather than analysing stats too much, because I think stats lie. Um, whereas if you watch a game and watch a play, if you've got a good eye for talent, you can see, you know, how they manage themselves, how they read the play. You, you know, you're watching blokes even where the ball isn't. You know, like I'm watching forwards or defenders, the position they take up when the ball's about to come into their area, not when it's, you know, watching the flight of the ball. Uh, and you can't get that off the coverage, can you? you just, you got to be at the ground. You never pick that up on the coverage. You know, you just see what's happening around the footy. And um, watching live is always, and what I've said to our guys is, use the video analysis as a tool to help, but make your judgment based on what you see live and what he can do. Um, and I, and I always looked at what they could do, not what they couldn't do. Um, that was another thing that I always thought was really important, you know, because you want guys to bring special traits. Um, you know, if a guy's just an exceptional kick or 
exceptionally clean, um, you know, or competitive beast. They're the things you, you, that you want. Um, you know, you can fix the other little things uh, along the journey. But you also want genuine footballers who are just smart operators on the footy field, who know where to go, who make the right moves, who put themselves in the right positions. Do they, um, do they get extra points if they're a left foot kick? <laughs> uh, it was funny about that. You know, everyone thought we had this plan to bring in left footers, but generally left footers are good kicks. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Clarko wanted good kicks. And funnily enough, a lot of them were, were left footers. Um, you know, uh, I didn't discriminate, but um, uh, I just, we just particularly, you know, defenders, he wanted really good defenders that played out wide and really good wingers, outside runners that were good kicks as well. Um, so um, a lot of them tended to be um, left-footed to the point that, you know, I think after about four years of getting left-footers, Clarko said, is there any good right-footed kicks? <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to hear about Rioli, I think? Because I think Gary did some... Lovely work with Cyril, <laughs> keeping him out of the clutches of Essendon. <laughs> uh, it was interesting with Cyril. Cyril. Cyril didn't really test all that well down at the draft camp in Canberra because um, the 3K run was always the last event. And uh, I think quite a number of planes actually got delayed waiting for Cyril to finish <laughs> um, for all the all the recruiters to get back home. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, he didn't really uh, shine in the 3K run and uh, apparently he didn't interview very well with clubs that um, he didn't want to go to. Specifically Adelaide. Yeah. <laughs> I did read that. <laughs> yeah, well, Matty Rendell loved him. Um, and um, oh, I've just forgotten the Adelaide coach who was a mad fitness fanatic. He, yeah, you'll you'll work it out. But he was he used to be the fitness head of guru, and the first question in their interview, he asked him. He said, "What do you um, do? You like training?" And Cyril said, "No, I hate it. <laughs> I, I don't like training. I just like playing games." And um, <laughs> but apparently, he did the same with West Coast and uh, all the interstate clubs. He just wanted to stay in Melbourne. He was happy to come to you know um, Essendon, Hawthorne, or you know, a good Melbourne-based club, Collingwood, whatever, but he didn't want to go interstate to any of the other clubs. So apparently he didn't all, um, interview all that well with them. Fair to say it worked out. Uh, you can be uh, indulgent for a second. Uh, which call do you think, in, in your remarkable contribution to the recruiting landscape of this club, what was the masterstroke? Well, personally for you, which is the one that you look back and celebrate the most? Well, it's not the one. I think that my first draft uh, with getting the three picks, you know, uh, the way that we worked that, I, I think that set the foundations up a little bit when you look at, you know, Franklin, who's maybe a once-in-a-generation type player coming through. Ruffhead who's just been such a – was such a brilliant player for Hawthorne right through. And um, Jordan Lewis, who, you know, was also just a, a really brilliant footballer and gave so much um, – so th those four players, um, I think, were fantastic. Um, you know, obviously Cyril Rioli. I think Graham Birchall, you know, uh, was another um, really good pickup. Ben Stratton at forty-two was a fantastic pickup. Sicily at fifty-five. Um, all of those sort of players, I think, were were, were great picks and helped develop a you know, really strong list for the club. I thought it might go that way, asking you to single it to one. But as it turns out, you did a bloody good job for quite a number of years. So it's fair enough, really. Yeah, look, I um, I really enjoyed that side of it and uh, watching and you know a lot of those guys, um, you know, I've got really good personal relationships with them, which you tend to do after, you know, you give them that opportunity. And, you know, a lot of them are really thankful for getting that opportunity. And, um, you know... Um, you know, I actually got a lot of pleasure in actually watching them develop their games as well. Because it's a, it's a tough business, isn't it? There's a lot of guys that prepare for it and uh, there's a lot that don't make it. Yeah, well, it's a very tough competition and you know? it's a really tough environment. And, um, you know, some, some handle it better than others. Um, some environments um, probably aren't conducive. You know, and I talked about the tambling thing. I just don't think the Richmond environment would have been really good. Whereas the, you know, the Hawthorne environment, we were probably ready. And, you know, if he had a, 
been that midfielder at pick seven, we, you know, to be honest, we probably would have gone tambling in front of Lewis, um, if I was honest, you know. Uh, but, you know, he'd gone and, and Lewis was next on our list and that's the way it went. Um, but, you know, I think in the Hawthorne environment, tambling might have just been a different player. Let's bring it into the present now as we um, prepare to wrap up. Uh, your assessment of Hawthorne's list back in October was that the team was finals bound, finishing anywhere between fifth and eighth, but you didn't necessarily have them earmarked as a contender, uh, same as me, as it happens. Uh, I think that's a good assessment. Has anything you've seen, heard or read swayed you one way or another on Hawthorne since? Look, I think um, there's a few X factors there um, and uh, a lot of it will depend on you know whether you finish eighth, fifth, or in the top four um, and, you know, really challenging for a premiership. I think, you know, keeping your best players on the field, like Tom Mitchell coming back in, you know, how well is he going to go? You know, is he just going to get better and better? Chad Wingard, um, you know, his form in the last month of the year last year was unreal. You know, can he stay healthy and fit? Um you know, the same with Jager O'Meara. I just think we're starting to see the real Jager O'Meara come back. So there's three really good star players. I think I like what um, they've done, bringing, you know, a bit of tall timber in pattern. It's just where, whether he can stand up. Uh, Frost is good uh, backup down, down back. So, look, again, I think they've addressed the needs um, really well in the trade period. And again, you just need luck. If if we if we keep um, you know the majority of the list together and have a reasonably good run with injuries, then we're a we're a really um, good chance. You know, we're probably a top four side. But again, you know, you've got to have that bit of luck, like everybody in the competition. I love to hear you say we, Gary. I was about That's to say fantastic. the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> So this week, Gary, I was reading your article about how you uh, want to take on AFL House and redirect the game and make it, you know, I think Clarko had a fair bit to say. Not sure about take on AFL. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it does feel a little bit adversarial because they seem to, um, you know, they're very protective of their decisions in the past and they don't seem to be working all that well. We've seen Carlton walk away from their arrangement and um, Hawthorne have uh, said they'll support Box Hill, but they had to cut ties there for this season. So it's um, it does leave a lot of the VFL clubs just hanging. Well, look at the situation. You've got AFL-aligned clubs, you've got AFL standalone clubs, and then you've got VFL standalone clubs. It's an, it's, it's an uneven competition. Um, which does not allow um, the pathway kids that have come through, say, 16s and 18s uh, TAC, which I'd like to see increased to 17s and 19s for those uh, competitions. Um, But those kids who maybe just miss out on the draft in Victoria, you know, unlike South Australia and Western Australia, where they go to their local club like West Torrens or, um, you know, central districts, whatever, and play reserves footy or, you know, senior footy. Um, so their pathway continues in Victoria. The kids get invited onto the um, VFL list. Generally, they can't get a game. The only two teams they can get a game with is Frankston and Coburg, who get beaten most weeks. And it's not really, a, you know, a, a conducive environment for development, you know. And but at the other clubs too, they've got AFL listed players that they need to get exposure to and and you're not necessarily selected on talent or put in the position for talent. It's um, Yeah, they've got their, their players that will play, their rookies, their Category B international rookies, et cetera, et cetera, who play in front of the kids. So all of a sudden they go and they're having to play local footy, which sometimes is a, re- a reasonable standard, but... The problem is, is they're not getting the exposure to the recruiters as much as, you know, um, the kids in the waffle of the sandful. The, the recruiters go to a game a day and watch three games all without having to move. And these kids are playing in those games. Whereas, you know, the recruiters are trying to watch the best standards and that's the VFL, the, the TAC Cup. And they, they don't get a lot of time to go to... Um, uh, local footy, they rely on word of mouth um, of who's playing well and then they might go. But 
we've got to fix the pathway where these kids can play. And my idea is that, you know, we should have, you know, the AFL Victorian clubs should have their own reserves competition, 10 team uh, reserves competition. And the VFL should become a, a statewide competition with, with teams around all of Victoria, like Ballarat, Bendigo, uh, Warrnambool, Geelong, um, Shepparton, Gippsland, and you know the the other teams um, in the metropolitan area provide a 17s, 19s, and seniors pathway for the kids that don't get drafted or the later matures who want to, you know, play in a proper competition. I just think it'll give such a great pathway to. Um, the footy outside, you know, and it'd be fantastic for country towns to have that sort of pathway. Yeah, because they have lost out of a lot of the money, haven't they, the country towns? Well, I'm not sure about the money, but it's the pathway for the kids, you know. Like um, if, a, if a young country lad, you know, in Ballarat, Bendigo, um, whatever, wants to um, increase his chances of playing AFL after not being drafted, he has to relocate away from his family and come to Melbourne, you know, and that's a big ask for an 18 year old or a 19 year old. There's nowhere for the country kids to go. So what's happening is we're losing a lot of footy, a lot of footy players and potential late developers like we're seeing in WA and Sandful players, because these young players are trying and then finding it's just too hard. They're not getting the game. They get disillusioned. And so they then look at careers or travel. And that's, we're losing so many young potential good Victorian players because they just can't get a VFL game. Certainly a meaty subject and uh, we, we could talk about, well, anything, anything football all day. I, I think we will wrap things up. But uh, I, I do want to end on one question, perhaps a bit remiss of us not to ask it at the, at the start of the interview. And I'm asking on behalf of all Hawthorne fans, Gary, uh, how are you? <laughs> what are you up to? What, what's going on these days? Well, I'm, I'm still staying in touch with the game, doing a bit of, um, you know, uh, media work with the Herald Sun. But basically, I'm just doing some consultancy work outside of and, and sort of at the moment um, with this coronavirus and, and whatever that we're, we're all in lockdown with. Um, basically, semi-retired, I guess, now. So, um, you know, that's probably going to be the lifestyle. I'll get on the golf course a bit more and go out and catch a snapper a bit more and um, keep my interest up in, in footy somehow, some way, and, um, and hopefully, um, you know, enjoy watching the Hawks successful again. Gary, I want to, want to thank you uh, from both of us. It's been absolutely amazing and uh, been very generous with your time. And, I mean, what a legacy, what a contribution to this Hawthorne Football Club. It, it's been sensational. So thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Uh, really enjoyed it. Well, Nick, we know the game isn't going to be the same again after this, but uh, I think Gary's going to make it very different if he's got his way. He's got some ideas. Uh, he's got some stories, that's for sure. He just entertained us for, what was that, about an hour and a half? I just hung off every word there. I enjoyed that immensely. And, um, yeah, we extend our sincere thanks. That was that was just an absolute pleasure. I've got to put my hand up and thank Benny Hall for organising that for us. Yes, do that. Credit where it's due. Thank you very much, Ben. I think it's time for the listeners to listen to that, uh, what is it, about 30-second highlight reel of Bucky kicking the goal, ending all the Melbourne hopes and dreams of 1987, <laughs> and then doing it all again the next year in the 88 <laughs> grand final by a record margin. Okay, you'll get your way. You'll have the highlights <laughs> at the end of the episode. Uh, but before we get to that, the social media stuff we've got to cover, uh, Apple Podcasts, of course, you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, rate and review us there. Hey, if you've really enjoyed this, uh, it wouldn't hurt if you told us so. <laughs> We'd really appreciate hearing from you. Uh, on, on Twitter as well, at HawkTalkPod, we've searched beyond 2,000 followers and we're growing this community very nicely indeed. Uh, always room for one more, always room for a thousand more. Can we get up to, what? what is the membership now? About 70,000? Can we get 70,000? That is the dream. <laughs> At Hawk Talk Pod is where you want to find us. We're on Facebook as well, of course. Facebook.com slash Hawk Talk Pod and Patreon. You can subscribe and support the show there. If you like what you heard, if you reckon it's worth a couple of dollars, maybe five, maybe ten, you decide. Patreon.com slash Hawk Talk Pod. You support the show there. That's how you make stuff like this happen. 
any other plugs, Tiz? Here's a plug for you. I want you to imagine that Hawthorne are behind. There's only 18 seconds left in the game and Tucky's taken the kick out. All right, okay, we'll get to it. I know you're desperate for it. Uh, this has been the Hawk Talk podcast, a very special episode indeed. And again, we extend our thanks to a legend of the club, Yari Bucanara, for joining us. We are a happy team at Hawthorne. Hawthorne have to come all the way down the ground. 26, 28 and a half minutes have gone. Alan Jeans has a close look at the situation. The long kick taken by Swab plays on. Langford comes out with the ball. Drives it down. Buccanara trip. Buccanara's free kick. Siren sounds. There's the siren. And he's got a kick from 55 metres out. I don't think that... It's 15, 15 metres. 15. What pressure on Gary Bacanara. He is a champion. He is a great kick. If he kicks this goal, Hawthorne are in the grand final. The umpires haven't heard it yet, I don't think. If he kicks this goal, Hawthorne are in the 1987 grand final. If he misses, Melbourne are in. There's the kick. It's a goal. It's a goal. Hawthorne have won with a kick after the siren. What a performance. A magnificent performance is by Hawthorne.